up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of Talking Christianity. My name is Josh Gibbs. We're going to be talking about total depravity today, so get excited. I think it's going to be a fun conversation. So welcome to Talking Christianity Apologetics. My name is Josh Gibbs, and I want to talk about total depravity today, uh, which is also called total inability within the Calvinist tulip system. Uh, I think there's a lot of implications that this doctrine has as it relates to original sin and uh, really man's ability to hear the gospel and believe it. Yesterday we talked about John chapter 6, and specifically verse 44, verse 39, uh, that no one's able to come to uh, Jesus except through the Father, except the Father draws them, and um, he'll raise him up on the last day. We looked at that verse. I, I looked at some historical arguments on what the Calvinists have said historically um, in their commentaries on John 6, 44 as it relates to total inability, but today I want to talk about just this doctrine overall. So I'm going to play a little clip. I'm going to give some more quotations from other Calvinists and what they say about total depravity, and then I'm going to give a response. A couple of different places Adam Harwood has written about this. Um, one is in the book, uh, Cal the new book with uh, David Allen, which is Calvinism, a biblical and theological critique. Adam Harwood has a section in this on total depravity. He also, in his new book, Christian Theology, has written extensively on that, where he goes over the six views of original sin. So I want to uh, look at those sorts of things, break down what those six views are as kind of a <clears throat> and you know an aerial view of what that is, and uh, see what we can do to come up with some sort of conclusion on what total depravity really is, if it's biblical or not, and what the Calvinists are saying. So let's look at a clip here. This is from Christianity.com. You can see this is a from a Calvinist talking about what total depravity means. So I want to pause it right there for just a second. You can see the Calvinist perspective on total depravity is making the claim that we're totally depraved, not as bad as we could be, but we're totally corrupt from our inward nature from birth. Um, there's a number of different views that Calvinists have. It's not a monolithic group as it relates to original sin and the implications and effect that that has 
on us um, being descendants of Adam. So essentially, uh, the main view that is being represented here is the total inability to hear the gospel and respond unless God gives you a heart of flesh. Now, that reference in the Old Testament is a reference to the nation of Israel specifically, um, but a lot of Calvinists want to use that verse to say that you're gonna, it's, a, it's a reference to regeneration, and specifically the necessity of regeneration prior to faith. That is, they're saying you are so totally depraved uh, at your core that you have a heart of stone, and unless you get a heart of flesh, you're regenerated, you're given a new desire that now you want to hear the gospel, and um, by necessity of, of that regeneration, you're now able to respond to the gospel. And not only that, but you will respond positively because of regeneration. So again, just listen to what he's saying here. So you have an invasion of the grace of God on our lives to make us new creatures uh, that changes our desires from being totally depraved to a new desire to come to God. Um, I'm going to come back here. I want to switch screens back and um, give it a few more quotations from other Calvinists. So that's one Calvinist who's, who's um, is taking the position that you're totally unable to respond to the gospel, um, except for this efficacious grace of God that changes your heart to give you the desire to want to. Now, Vincent Chung says, God controls everything that it is, that is, and everything that happens. There's not one thing that happens that he's not actively decreed, not even a single thought in the mind of man. Since this is true, it follows that God has decreed the existence of evil. He's not merely permitted it as if anything can originate and happen apart from his will and power. Since we've shown that no creature can make completely independent decisions, evil could never have started without God's active decree, and it cannot continue for one moment longer apart from God's will. God decreed evil ultimately for his own glory. He goes on and says, Those who see that it's impossible to altogether disassociate God from the origination and continuation of evil, nevertheless, try to distance God from evil by saying that God merely permits evil and that he does not cause any of it. However, since scripture itself states that God actively decrees everything and that nothing can happen apart from his will and power, it makes no sense to say that he merely permits something. Nothing happens by God's mere permission. Um... These are all references to uh, this decree. So the decree obviously is going to be an eternal decree. It happens logically prior in the mind of the Calvinist uh, to the creation of the world so that whatsoever thing comes to pass is done by the will of God, which is the desire of God for these things to happen. Now, naturally, you've got this idea of double predestination, which some Calvinists adhere to, some say they don't. Uh, but, you know, Calvin himself says that if, if you don't adhere to double predestination, that I, then it's not even, it's just, it's, it's a soft stance. It's, it, it just doesn't make any sense. So the argument of double predestination is if God has predestined one to eternal life, 
whether he just passes by and leaves somebody in their unregenerate state um, or not is is regardless he's made a decision to not elect that person so it's it's a choice to save some but it's also a choice to a choice to not save others so as it relates to election and this decree it's all preordained it's predestined it's it's um, fated if you look at the definition of fate in the dictionary that's what it is it cannot change there's nothing you can do to change what god has decreed um, so in this sense these guys vincent chung is is backing up this decree so the original sin it, it starts with the decree original sin wouldn't have happened with adam if god hadn't decreed it john piper says when i say that everything that exists including evil is ordained by an infinitely holy and all-wise god to make the glory of christ shine more brightly i mean that one way or another god sees to it that all things serve to glorify his son God is able, without blameworthy tempting, to see to it that a person does what God ordains for him to do, even if it involves evil. Now, just think about what is being said here. Like this decree in the Calvinist worldview, it, it, it doesn't just make God passive in what's happening. Like Calvinists don't believe God is passive in anything. Anything that takes place whether it's good, whether it's evil, whether it's sin, whether it's righteousness, whether it's original sin, whether it's imputed guilt, whether it's any good works that you do, any grace that's imparted by God to man, any of that. And you can go through all the heinous things and crimes against humanity and things that other people have done against other people throughout the history of this world. And these things are all grounded in the decree that is God's desire prior to the foundation of the world. So, like, let's not just say that this is a, a soft little, you know, God, God is just allowing these things to happen or permitting these things to happen. That's not what the Calvinist is saying. The Calvinist is saying that God is active in these things. He desires these things. He's bringing them to pass. Um, and that includes this determinative control over your mind, your will, your nature, your thoughts, your actions, uh, prior to salvation and post-salvation. So I think my gain might be a little high here. No sound on the video. That's not good. Okay, so I see the comment there. I don't know why there's no sound on that. That's got to have something to do with... Oh, man, that's got to have something to do with my preferences. I just am using a new computer here, so I'm going to have to find a way to fix that later. But anyways, um, I can't go back and play it now because, well, actually, I might be able to get the audio and just play that for you guys in the audio on this computer. Give me just a second. I want you to be able to hear this. But hang on just a second. Let's go over here. Okay, I think I've got it here. All right, let's see if we can get it. So you'll just be able to hear the audio. 
as bad as we possibly could be in a practical sense. Total depravity simply means that, um, that every part of our being is corrupted by sin. And specifically, that, that, that our will, our human will, is kind of bent in on itself so that we will not seek God, we will not choose God um, in and of ourselves. Uh, we need God's uh, effectual grace, His powerful working, to change our hearts. I hope you guys can hear change this. Change our minds so that we do choose Him. So total depravity is really about our inability to do what God calls us to do because of our own sinful corruption. And it, an understanding of that helps us to appreciate the wonderful grace uh, and mercy of God who seeks those who are not just lost, but who are wayward and stiff-necked and rebellious. <clears throat> and He gives us a heart. You know, the Scripture says that this new covenant promise is that um, God will take away our stony heart and give us um, a fleshy heart, a heart that beats with love for him. Uh, that's the difference between being totally depraved and unable to come to God on our own and his grace that invades our lives and makes us new creatures. Perfect. Okay, so um, hopefully you were able to hear the audio there. I'm, I'm sorry about that. I don't... I don't know exactly how to change that in the system preferences. I'll have to figure that out um, in order for it to broadcast from the system audio. But regardless, I think the point is um, the overall uh, Calvinist position is, is going to be one that requires this change of heart in order to respond to the gospel. Now, now this is a sort of prevenient grace. Um, the Calvinist calls it um, effectual, uh, an effectual means of grace via regeneration. Some Calvinists don't believe in regeneration prior to faith. It's like this logical priority type argument. But, but uh, others, Arminians, will call it a prevenient grace, a grace that comes prior to hearing some, some, some divine work of the Spirit in the heart of the non-believer to be able to believe the gospel. Now, I'll, I'll get into um, these six different types of uh, views on original sin, but I want to continue where I left off in, in showing that this decree ultimately uh, is founded, this doctrine is ultimately founded in this decree from God um, that puts man in the condition that they're in through the fall. So some call it superlapsarian, some go through the infralapsarian, sublapsarian, views, but the, I, in my perspective, and most strong Calvinistic perspectives, would hold to a supralapsarian view. That is, the decree comes prior to the fall. God, God ordained, preordained, predestined the fall. That is, pr before God created Adam, he had a plan for Adam to sin. He wanted to sin. He, he brought it to pass by um, allowing access into the garden of the serpent to beguile Eve, those all those sorts of things. God, that was God's plan. There was no alternative. R.C. Sproul Jr. says, God wills all things that come to pass. God desired for man to fall into sin. I'm not accusing God of sinning. I'm suggesting that God created sin. J.I. Packer says, God orders and controls all things. Human actions among them. He also holds every man responsible for the choices he makes and the courses of action he pursues. Like, before I finish the rest of that quote, like, think about what he just said. God orders and controls all things, human actions among them. 
And then he holds them responsible for the choices he makes them make. Like, uh, this is what uh, Ken Wilson calls the unfree free will. Like, this idea of compatibilism. It's the non-compatible compatibilist view. It's just, it's silly. I mean, why are we why are we using this language that is completely contradictory it's like it's like my own loving loving marriage like i i it doesn't make any sense um but regardless like just listen to what they're saying god controls everything about the human the person whether regenerate or regenerate or unregenerate and that includes sin that includes the fall um <clears throat> like the implications this makes on god uh, they're detrimental to the Christian worldview. I don't know why anybody, I don't know why anybody holds these. Edwin Palmer says, well, let me finish that. He says, he says, uh, J.I. Packer, he picks up, man is a responsible moral agent, though he's also divinely controlled. Man is divinely controlled, though he's also a responsible moral agent. To our finite minds, of course, the thing is inexplicable. <laughs> that's what i'm saying like this is my thing with calvinism it's like we make these strong claims and then we appeal to mystery when we can't back them up it's like why are we doing this and how like i in my own mind i'm like i if i had a position like that i would never tell anybody just because it's so stupid like i don't I, i'm not a big fan of people looking at me and going like hey like you're not make, you're pretty dumb for thinking that and then just going, ah, it doesn't make any sense, but I believe it. Like, uh, okay, so Edwin Palmer, all things that happen in all the world at any time and in all history, whether inorganic matter, vegetation, animal, man, or angels, both good and evil ones, come to pass because God ordained them. Even sin, the fall of the devil from heaven, the fall of Adam, and every evil thought, word, and deed in all of history. Foreordination means God's sovereign plan whereby he decides all that is to happen in the entire universe. Nothing in this world happens by chance. God is in the back of everything. He decides and causes all things to happen that do happen. He's not sitting on the sidelines wondering and perhaps fearing what is going to happen next. No, he has foreordained everything after the counsel of his will. And you have a quotation of Ephesians 1.11 that's completely out of context. The moving of a finger, uh, the beating of a heart, the laughter of a girl, the mistake of a typist, even sin. Although sin and unbelief are contrary to what God commands, God has included them in his sovereign decree, ordained them, caused them to certainly come to pass. Uh, WGT Shed says sin is one of the whatsoevers that have come to pass, all of which are ordained. Nothing comes to pass contrary to his decree. Nothing happens by chance. Even moral evil, which he abhors and forbids, occurs by the determinative counsel and foreknowledge of God. Man's inability to explain how God can make things certain but not compulsory is no reason to deny that God can do it and that he has done it. Again, really strong claims about God's involvement in sin and evil and the corruptions of man's nature and his will and his desires and all of these sorts of things which transition into uh, 
kind of this presupposition of what has to be carried into um, the sin of Adam. So the sin of Adam is preordained. This is sin. This is something that happened. God, God can't not know this thing is going to happen and allow it to happen. He actively brings it to pass because he wants it to happen, and he, he, he makes it happen. He gives Adam the desire to make it happen, and he does it. And sin is brought into this world, and now we have this, this groundwork, this framework for um, our original sin doctrine. So the original sin doctrine of the Calvinist. Um, typically, it's federal headship, um, but, but I want to transition now. I've, I've looked at a, a video clip, and you guys got just the audio. You had the video with no audio, then you got the audio with no video. But at least you can see what Calvinists are saying for themselves about total depravity, total inability. You're not able to believe the gospel unless God gives you a heart to do it. In fact, God God chose for you to not be able to hear the gospel and believe it. And he will not give you the ability to believe it because you might not be elect. You might not be chosen. You, you might not be the special one that God loved before the foundation of the world. So um, Adam Harwood in his book... Um, with David Allen and other authors, he writes in chapter, let me see what chapter is. So it's section one, chapter one, a, crit a critique of total depravity. Adam Harwood um, does this, this section, and it's the book Calvinism, a B Biblical and Theological Critique. So the whole concept of original sin is going to be based in, in sin and the impact of Adam's sin on uh, the, on his ancestors on not his ancestors is um, us. So, anyways, uh, Adam Adam points out there's some Hebrew words to look at. There's some Greek words to look at. Um, but he says sin is any deviation from God's revealed will. People sin by either failing to conform to God's standards or explicitly exposing them, opposing them. People sin by their thoughts, attitudes, speech, or actions, either by acting wrongly or failing to act rightly. Sin is against God and nature. Sin is a reminder that the world is not the way it should be. Now, God's good creation has been defiled by sin. He says, presently, neither this world nor humans are the way God created them in the beginning. So you've got Adam and Eve. Uh, they chose to disobey, disobey, and humans have been broken and live in a fallen world. This is the question we're trying to answer. What exactly is the effect of the sin in Adam and Eve on the world, on us? He says, humans are broken and sinful, which does not excuse sinful deeds. People should be accountable for their actions. That is, the Bible accounts for the situation. The first people's, the first couple's disobedience in the garden introduced these occasions of moral evil. That would be events caused by a person's will, and natural evil, events not caused by a person's will, such as weather and illness and animals, um, that damage God's very good creation. Now, you remember earlier I, I made a quotation from a certain Calvinist that that says it's not just the moral evil that God has decreed. Um, it's also natural evil. It's like, it's like all these natural disasters, calamities, evils, and animals, the, like just the whole animal world, how that works, um, including the sin of man, 
is is a um, part of this decree. God wanted it this way. And Adam goes on, he, he talks about the restoration, what God has done to make, to right the sin, the evil in this world by laying down his life um, for sin, becoming sin, and uh, being raised from the dead on our behalf. Um, so he says we inhabit a body of death. Okay, we all agree with this. There's three points that he makes. First, sin is universal. Everyone's been impacted by sin. It's unavoidable. Even Jesus, who was sinless and committed no sin, was impacted by sin. Jesus was crucified by sinful people. He, was, he took on the sin of the world and became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. So the impact of sin is universal. We see that. Now, second, it's not a human problem. Sin is the human problem. There's so many things that you can transition into <clears throat> based off of that statement of sin being the human problem. It prompted the sacrificial system that resulted in God's judgment on sin being deferred. You see that in Romans 3. The culmination of that is in the crucifixion of Christ, where he gave his life as a ransom for many. He gave his life for sinners. So sin is the human problem. God solved the problem on the cross. So, okay. Third, sinners cannot save themselves. Now, this is, this is something the Calvinist, I think, wants to say that if you think that you have the ability to respond to the gospel prior to the work of the Spirit giving you a new heart, that you are now able to respond to the gospel, that uh, you, you have something to boast of. Like, you're, what did you do that uh, makes you better than the person who didn't believe? That kind of thing. Um. But it's to me, it's a red herring. It's kind of gaslighting. It's talking past what we're actually saying. We don't believe that you can save yourself. We don't believe that um, your ability to hear the gospel, the good news that is the power of God unto salvation, um, is a superpower. We don't believe that it's this supernatural thing that God grants to some people and not to others. We believe that God draws everybody. And if you listen and learn from the Father, um, there's that leads to hearing the gospel and believing. Like there is this prevenient grace of God um, giving you the gospel, but there, it's not this effectual kind of thing where you, you're regenerated and given this heart to be able to believe the gospel. So th- hear the difference in what we're saying now. That's that's the accusation that you would get is you're you're claiming to have this ability to save yourself if you're able to hear the gospel without being um, born again, and we get accusations of being semi-Pelagian um, from these sorts of <laughs> conversations. But here's the question: um, What do people inherit from Adam's sin in the garden? There's two v- Christian views on original sin that Adam writes about here. In, in the book, Calvinism, a Biblical and Theological Critique. So the first question he says to be addressed is, what do people inherit of Adam's sin in the garden? And um, there's other categories for this, but uh, the inherited guilt view is that all people inherit from Adam's sinful inclinations, mortality, and the guilt of Adam's sin. That is, you're guilty of Adam's sin as an effect of the sin of Adam. It's passed on. It's like a hereditary thing. And that's where you get into like traducianism, 
um, and other concepts of like how this sin is transferred from one human to another at conception, those sorts of things. But um, the other would be inherited consequence. That's the view that all people inherit from Adam sinful inclinations and mortality, but not the guilt of his sin. So uh, there's theologians who write about original sin and, ass and assign various terms, but generally distinguish between those two main positions, inherited guilt and inherited, inherited consequence. I would hold to the inherited consequence view. The inherited guilt view, um, it would be the strong Calvinist view that you're not able to respond to the gospel. You're born guilty. That includes infants. Like, it, you know, I get it. Some Calvinists want to hold this position of inherited guilt and then appeal to mystery when it comes to infants. Some want to, want to say like, ah, well, you know, God, God, um, there's God has different reasons for infants dying and going to, but, but regardless, um, Regardless, without getting into a conversation about, you know, where do babies go when they die, that topic needs to be um, handled. It needs to, There needs to be a delicate conversation about that, I think. Uh, but that's not the point of this, this episode today. So, um, in the transmission of sin, Augustine, in the pre-Augustinian sources, per Franco-Beatrice, distinguish between what Joseph Termal originally called hereditary sin and hereditary decline. Hereditary sin is the view that all people suffer the consequences of Adam's sin, primarily physical death, and his descendants are guilty of sin transmitted from him. Hereditary decline is the view that all people suffer from the consequences of Adam's sin, primarily physical death, but this view denies that sin is passed to Adam's descendants. Uh, hereditary sin corresponds to inherited guilt, and hereditary decline corresponds to inherited consequences. Like, this is what I love about Adam Harwood. Like, he takes these concepts and just, like, two sentences, breaks it down, like, condenses it all. Awesome stuff. Makes it so easy to just read for a dummy like me and go, ah, I get it, kind of. Okay. Donald McLeod, in his original Sin and Reformed Theology, detailed the debates among Reformed theologians about what was received from Adam. McLeod referred to the two views as immediate, immediate imputation and immediate imputation. Immediate imputation is the view that Adam's descendants receive an immediate imputation of both corruption and guilt due to Adam's sin. Immediate imputation is the view that Adam's descendants inherit corruption from him, but guilt is mediated through their own sinful acts. So you can already see, like, these things, have, there's good scholarship on both sides. Um, and the historicity of each side goes way back. In fact, uh, the inherited consequence view predates this Augustinian-Manichian um, transition from Manichian Gnosticism of divine determinism into the inherited guilt view. So that didn't originate until Augustine. But, but... Regardless, let's look at the arguments and weigh them out and see, see where we can land here. Uh, he says, uh, <clears throat> immediate Im imputation corresponds to inherited guilt. Immediate imp imputation corresponds to inherited consequences. Thomas McCall provided a comprehensive presentation and analysis in the historic Christian theories of original sin. He details six major options, definitions, and represent representations. 
Okay. So here's the six major views. Um, I think that this is going to line up to what he talks about in, in the other the other book, um, Christian Theology. I'm going to go to that right after this, and then I want to end it with a, a comment from Sam Webb and his conclusion of what, what Calvinism really means, like the impact that it has on your life and the conclusion that you should come to. But here's the six things. The, the um, What did he call it? The six uh, major options for this original sin concept. The first is symbolic and existential interpretations. That is, deny the existence or importance of Adam and Eve. So it's a symbolic or exist- existential interpretation. That is, you know, you, it's like this practical application. You deny it, um, the importance of Adam and Eve or the existence of, of this altogether. Like it's, it's allegorical. Two would be corruption-only doctrines. Corruption without uh, corresponding guilt due to Adam's sin. This would be the Christian theology before Augustine, the Orthodox Church, Ulrich Zwingli, Richard Swinburne, Stanley Grimms. Corruption without corresponding guilt due to Adam's sin. Okay, then you've got corruption and guilt. That would be federalism. It's also called federal headship. Um, all people are guilty of Adam's sin because he represented humanity in the garden. And the big uh, point of discussion biblically on this is going to be Romans 5.12 primarily. Like to me, that's the primary text. Then you get into subtexts of like John 6. Uh, but but that's it. So the effect of Adam on the world, um, they say, uh, through federalism, federal headship, not only are you corrupt, but you're guilty. Um, the second was the corrupt only, so you're corrupted by the sin of Adam. And then the first one is symbolic and existential. It's kind of an allegory type thing. Number four is corruption and guilt in uh, realism. So all people are guilty of Adam's sin. Sounds sounds like federalism. Because they were present with him in the garden. So this is the Augustine view, Jonathan Edwards' view. Now the difference of the federalism view was he represented us in the garden. The realism view is we were present with him in the garden. <clears throat> that is uh, because <laughs> like we were physically um, part of him. And when he had babies, uh, we were we came from Adam like naturally that way. And that's that's where this guilt comes in, the realism side. Uh, number five is corruption and guilt. And the immediate view. All people are guilty due to the corruption from original sin, not for the sins of Adam and Eve. Um, So you're guilty due to the corruption from original sin, but not for the sins of Adam and Eve. That's Anselm, John Calvin, Henry Blocker. And then the sixth one is going to be conditional imputation of guilt. All people ratify the guilt of Adam when they knowingly commit their first act of sin. That would be Millard Erickson. Now, I'm not going to get into each one of those six. I just want to break that down and show you there are six major views. But I do, however, want to go to Adam Harwood's book on Christian theology. I'd highly recommend this. This is his new systematic theology. But um, he says in... What chapter is this? I don't know how to find the chapter or where my place is. But... Okay, so... He's got six major views on original sin, 
and every Christian affirms various views of original sin. So everybody has to deal with it. Like, what's the deal? Like, what effect did Adam have? Like, you have to deal with Romans 5.12. You have to deal with John 6, these sorts of things. Um, by the way, if any of you who are in the chat uh, want to join this live stream, you can do that. I'll put a uh, link into the comments, and uh, I'm going to do that really quick just so, oh crud, maybe I can't do that really quick. Yeah, I can't do that really quick, so that's not going to work. Sorry. But anyways, oops, that's not good. Let me minimize that. There we go. Back in business. All right, so you're not going to be able to join the chat, but you might uh, put questions in or whatever. Um, I wish I could put comments in on this, this application without having to. Oh, I can. But I have to do it. Okay. Well, sorry, guys. I'm not going to be able to do the comments now. I wasn't prepared for that. Um, I've, I'm figuring out the things that I've got to set up different on this computer to make it happen. Uh, that's my desire because the last live stream I did, the last few, anytime I get more than one guest on with my old computer, it was like, man, it would just lag so bad the computer couldn't keep up with it. But I hopefully that uh, issue is fixed. So... And what I'm saying is I've, I've got to get some of those old things figured out. So anyways, okay. <clears throat> okay, uh, so let's see here. There's six major views on original sin. What, if anything, do subsequent generations inherit as a result of Adam's sin in the garden? So there's six major views that have been developed. The denial of inheritance. And then there's four varieties of the inherited uh, guilt view. And then there's the inherited consequences view. Now, Adam does a good job on the, histor the historical side of things. He's like, oh, I want to know what the councils say. I don't want to be against the councils and the creeds and those sorts of things. But he says the major ecumenical councils of the first four centuries, <clears throat> they didn't address original sin. So he says, rather, those councils address topics such as the humanity and divinity of Christ and the Trinity. Those were the major issues in those days. <clears throat> so the wider church has not offended. Uh, they haven't affirmed a consensus position on original sin. Uh, th those four major views are going to be denial of inheritance. Karl Barth exemplifies this view. I want to see if I've got a quotation from him. Um, but his view... In his discussion on sin and his treatment of the person and work of Christ, he explains, um, what does he explain? He says, only when we uh, know Jesus Christ do we really know that man, is the, uh, that man is the man of sin and what sin is and what it means for man. Barth continues, the God against whom the man of sin contends has judged this man and therefore myself as this man and the self-offering and death of Jesus Christ, his own son, putting him to death and destroying him. So, um, he goes on, he says, Jesus suffered and died in our place, 
Human pride is the root of sin. Disobedience and unbelief, it's the antithesis of Jesus' life and ministry. So Barth would affirm humans as sinners, human sin as the reason for the redemption provided by Christ. <clears throat> but he doesn't link human sin with the sinful acts of the first couple in the garden. So the idea of hereditary sin, which came to man by propagation, he says is extremely unfortunate and a mistaken one. So um, regardless, you see a little bit about Adam uh, Carl Barth there with the denial of inheritance. Uh, Psalm 51 is always going to be there, like uh, in my mother's womb was I conceived in sin, something like that. But that's that's kind of used to show this hereditary transmission of sin. Uh, I think that verse is kind of misconstrued in that sense, but regardless. Okay. Now, there's the four views of the inherited guilt, the realism. This would be Augustine. He was the exemplar of that. I want to give an example of what Augustine says. He says, in his book, The City of God, I had to read this in college, The City of God, uh, also his uh, confessions. But he says, uh, for uh, we all were in that one man since we were all, uh, since we all were that one man. He adds, already the seminal nature was there from which we were to be propagated and this being vitiated by sin and justly condemned man could not be born of man in any other state. <clears throat> so we were present with Adam and were produced from a nature corrupted by that first sin. Jonathan Edwards says, uh, God in each step of his proceeding with Adam in relation to the covenant and constitution established with him looked on his posterity as being one with him. Edwards compared God's dealings with subsequent generations through Adam as dealing with the root of a tree. God dealt with all the branches as if he had, if they had been existing in their root. Both guilt or uh, exposedness to punishment and also depravity of heart came upon Adam's posterity just as they came upon him, as much as if he and they had all coexisted like a tree with many branches. He concludes with this statement. <clears throat> It'd be Romans 5.12, uh, image bearer. Which verse am I referring to? I wonder if I can put that up. Aha, I got that. Okay, so I can do that still. Uh, that's Romans 5.12. Um, following, following truth, LJ. Yeah, that's pretty strange. Jesus says children are innocent. Yep, it is strange. So um, we want to we deal with that. Like, what is um, what is the 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 reach of sin into uh, children, kids, infants? Um, Adam Harwood again. I mean, like this guy, he deals with this in depth. He he wrote a book on uh, uh, infants. I, I've got it. I'll have to see if I can find it. But maybe I can find the spot that I've got bookmarked in there that kind of highlights um, what he says about it. But okay. Now, <clears throat> um, mediate imputation, this is uh, one of the other imputed guilt views. Mediate imputation is, is Adam's descendants inherit corruption, but guilt is mediated through one's own sinful acts. Calvin was the example on this perspective where he says, inherited corruption, which the church fathers termed original sin, sin was transmitted from the first man to all his posterity, and we bore... We bear inborn defect from our mother's womb. 
Therefore, all of us who have descended from impure seed, like it's this physical thing of seed and like making babies sort of thing, um, are born uh, infected with the contagion of sin. Like sin is this virus and it comes from your daddy. Uh, you get into Job 14.4 as a proof text for the guilt of infants. Um, Job 14.4. Let me see if I can share my screen and just show you. Well, I don't want that one. I want to pull up Job 14.4 for you guys. Hang on, it's loading. but I need to show the screen so you can't see it. Mm, there it is. Share screen. Okay, you should be able to see this. Let me get back to that. <clears throat> so Job 14.4 says, Who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean thing? Uh, John Calvin did not put a comment on that. But I think Ellicott has a comment on it where he quotes Job 25, 4. How can man be clean that is born of woman who is unclean? The question is reiterated by Bildad. We ought perhaps, however, rather to render, oh, that the clean could come forth from the unclean, but none can. So that's this idea here is, um, the idea here is that um, this guilt, this, seed concept is kind of the word the descendants of adam and therefore we inherit that that sort of we inherit uh, sin and guilt through adam physically okay now calvin doesn't follow augustine's later views of original sin though uh, calvin refers to inborn defect and claims that contagion crept into human nature he denies adam's posterity as guilty of sin. He affirms infant guilt. He, he writes, hence as Augustine says, whether a man is guilty, is a guilty unbeliever or an innocent believer, he begets not innocent but guilty children for he begets them from a corrupted nature. Original sin therefore seems to be a hereditary depravity and corruption of our nature diffused into all parts of the soul which first makes us liable to God's wrath then also brings forth in us those works with the scripture calls works of flesh. Okay. Then you got federalism, federal headship. <clears throat> All people are corrupt and guilty of Adam's sin because he represented them. He represented humanity in the garden. Okay, Francis Turretin believed that. He taught it. He says in the former uh, covenant of nature, God as creator demands perfect obedience from innocent man with the promise of life and eternal happiness. But in the latter the covenant of grace. So he's saying like, you had to have good works to be saved in the Old Testament. In the New Testament now, this new covenant, you've got regeneration. So, so you've got this, okay. So, God, um, but in the latter, <clears throat> the covenant of grace, God as Father promises salvation in Christ to the fallen man under the condition of faith. A contract was implied in the garden because God gave Adam a command to obey. Now, remember, I gave all those quotations from Calvinists who 
God, God planned the fall. God ordered the fall. God brought the fall to pass. Like, but and He's still going to hold you accountable. So, uh, and you're not just accountable for your sin; you're accountable for Adam. So, He says that Adam was created capable of falling. Uh, which I think is kind of a canard. It's like, ah, he was created capable. No, he was created to fall in the Calvinist worldview. Like God's, remember, God is not passive in the fall uh, with hard hard determinism, hard determinism, consistent Calvinism. Now, Turton goes on to explain, he says, the effects of Adam's sin on himself and the subsequent generations included corruption, guilt, and the loss of, of original righteousness. So, as the result, every person born of a woman, with the exception of Jesus, enters the world in the condition of Adam after his fall, without original righteousness and corrupt and spiritually dead. Now, these kind of statements is what really bothers me when it comes to the incarnation. Like Hebrews tells us, God took on every aspect of our nature such that if he did not die for every aspect of the human nature, having become every aspect of the human nature, we are yet in our sin and in need of a savior. Like, think about that for a minute. It's like, when we're talking about original sin, and I, and I get it, like, I, I get the arguments that Calvinists bring up here, but I'm making a, a, a broader argument in respect to the presumption that one's Christology is founded upon your belief on original sin and total inability, imputed guilt, those sorts of things. When you take your Christology and build upon your, your belief of original sin. So that is, you have to say that Christ did not take on the exact same nature as us in every way because of original sin. Like that's problematic for me in the incarnation. I don't know exactly how to deal with all of that yet, but in my mind, I'm going like, major problem here. Um, and, and I know what the response, I know what the answers are. Like, it, he wasn't born from a man. He was born from his father. Like, the transmission of the seed is through the father. Sin is transmitted through the seed. He didn't get the transmission of sin through the father. I get it. I have problems with that. Um, I have problems with that because he assumed all parts of humanity. So, so that's where I see the real victory over sin is in the incarnation. Um, it's, it's not this thing of, okay, let, those are side notes. Okay, let's, let's keep going. Let's keep going. Turton argues for the imputation of sin from the parallel between Adam and Christ. In the, this is the key text, Romans 5, 12 through 21. Turton affirms the seminal view, he adds, and prioritizes the federal view. So in the federal view, all people are sinners and guilty because Adam represented the human race. He violated the covenant he made with God, and we are um, we're the responsible ones for that now. Conditional imputation. Everybody's corrupt. You're guilty of, of the sin of Adam and uh, when you knowingly commit your first sin. So uh, this is Millard Erickson. Uh, he says... All of humanity, excluding Jesus Christ. Again, we've got a view on on the nature of man that Christ died for that he didn't assume. So Christ died for this nature of man, but he didn't have that nature of man. Like we're saying, 
Christ was 100% human, but, I mean, not exactly the way we are. Like, okay. So, <clears throat> he explains, the Lord excludes from condemnation infants and those who never reach moral competency. So, this is Erickson's way of, uh, of um, kind of dealing with infants and, and the death of infants. He's like, well, yeah, like, you, you're guilty of Adam's sin, but not until you sin. Once you sin, then you're guilty of Adam's sin, too. So that's why, you know, um, infants, if they don't knowingly commit sin, then they can't be guilty of Adam's sin, and so they can go to heaven. Um, that's Erickson. He, he, he has a defense for the age of accountability, and he exclaims, Children were not held responsible for the sinful actions of the older generations. And he goes on, Isaiah 7.15 and Jonah 4.11, to refer to this period when people don't know... Uh, the difference between good and evil, right and wrong yet. Okay. Uh, so, one must personally ratify the obedient act of Christ on the cross in order to be saved, and one must personally ratify the disobedient work of Adam in the garden in order to be condemned. Um, so that would be a conditional imputation of Adam's guilt where uh, with no condemnation until one reaches the age of moral responsibility, and that's when you become aware of your sin. That's when you're, you've got your, the sin um, imputed. Now, <clears throat> you've got the inherited consequence view. This is the one that I hold to. Um, this is the view that all people inherit the consequences of Adam's sin, such as a corrupt nature, mortality, and a fallen world. However, people become guilty and fall under God's condemnation due to their own sin alone. So this was the Christian position before Augustine, and it was uh, affirmed by many throughout church history. The early church has a lot to say about it. They're generally agreed that the concept of original sin as people inheriting the guilt of Adam's sin was virtually unknown in the entire Christian tradition until the later writings of Augustine. Instead, in both the East and the West, they affirmed views consistent with the inherited consequences view. Clement of Alexandria, Athanasius, Cyril of Alexandria, Mark the Hermit, Theodore of Tarsus, John Chrysostom, Theodore of Mopsustia, and Theodoret of Cyrus all rejected any concept of inherited sin and guilt. Uh, you've got others. Adam's sin resulted in a weakened will, physical death, and other non-condemnatory results. J.N.D. Kelly says, There's hardly a hint in the Greek fathers that mankind as a whole shares in Adam's guilt. The same was true in the Latin Western church fathers, though they viewed sin as a corrupting force. The guilt of Adam's sin attaches to Adam himself and not to us. You've got a lot of qu uh, quotes uh, from Tertullian. Gregory of Nyssa, John Chrysostom, Anselm, and uh, then he gets into a lot of the history side of these things. But um, Alvin Plantinga, I think, is a, is a good place to stop with this side of Adam Harwood's stuff here. He says, uh, he says, um, Alvin Plantinga identifies with the views of Aquinas and Calvin, where he writes, Unlike a sinful act, I perform original sin need not be thought of as something for which I am culpable, 
which would be original sin, is not necessarily original guilt. Insofar as I'm born in this predicament, my being in it is not within my control and not up to me. So he distinguishes among sinful acts, original sin and original guilt, and he affirms two concepts, but not original guilt. Now, McCall says Adam is guilty for his sins, and while we suffer the result of Adam's sins, it's our own sin for which we are guilty. Oliver Crisps uh, has a more moderate Reformed doctrine of original sin where he says um, there's thin biblical support for original guilt and points out the original guilt is not part of the church's dogmatic core or beliefs on, of beliefs on original sin. Only some Protestants affirm it. Okay, so uh, Adam Harwood goes into the impact of affirming inherited consequences for the doctrines and humanity of Christ. That's the big thing for me. I think there's huge consequences uh, on the humanity of Christ, the incarnation, the atonement, what it actually accomplished, um, based on your view of original sin. So uh, these things are conversations we should have. I think that we need to continue to challenge each other and to really look at the foundation of where um, this, this, these Calvinist concepts are coming from. Keep in mind everything in Calvinism. A lot of people want to say total depra depravity. If it falls, everything falls. Other people want to say if anyone falls, they all fall. It's all founded in this eternal decree on God's active and passive knowledge prior to the creation. That's where the argument lies with me. Like... That's where I'm at with it. Um, God, God in the Calvinist worldview isn't passive, just like sitting back watching, you know, and being surprised by things. He's he's actively bringing to pass everything that he wants to wants to happen, and nothing happens outside of his will. Like nothing happens, not just in God, like uh, you know, allowing something to happen. Like it, God doesn't allow things to happen; He makes them happen. Like that's that's this Calvinist God. Um, I want to I want to close with this and look at what Sam Webb says. He says um, <clears throat> Sam Webb says I often get into debates about or related to Calvinism. He says the likelihood of persuading a longtime Calvinist is slim, but there are many just experiencing this doctrine, and they need to be reached. He says, I get so frustrated at quotes such as Spurgeon saying, Calvinism is the gospel, that I ban him from my bookshelf, or perhaps a bit dramatic. I also find it alarming when Baptists play around with terms such as total depravity. They, they affirm it like, oh, we're totally depraved. But they don't believe it. They don't believe that, like, they don't believe what total depravity is actually saying. But okay, so he says, they're using using the general using it in a general way that have very specific meanings beyond how they are using them. The fact is, many, including Baptists, are not familiar with the dangers of Calvinism. Many may be uh, may not be interested in or motivated to do the study necessary to understand it, but all should be aware of its conclusion. Here's his objection: Sam Webb's objection to Calvinism. He says it's more. Ex quickly and easily expressed in examining its ultimate conclusion than in a verse-by-verse proof-text battle. He says, um, he says here's, here's the bottom line for him. 
What's the conclusion of the thing? Um, he says, I have several Calvinist friends and I consider brothers in Christ I can discuss this with in a productive manner. We can even agree on several principles about salvation. After all, in some ways, the differences is, difference is more about who than it is the how of salvation. Sometimes you hear a short and refreshingly simplistic summary, such as, I just believe that God's declared who will and who will not receive him before creation. And I appreciate the simplicity and honesty of that statement, but I don't agree with it. Scripturally, I see Calvinism ignoring not only the universal offer of salvation, but both the possibility and responsibility of man to respond to the call and conviction. That's prevalent in Scripture. Uh, which brings up a good point. Like, you've, I read those quotes earlier that man is responsible for something he's determined to do and has no ability to do otherwise. Like, that's not responsibility. Like, can we, it's when we say things like that, I'm like, God, well, you can't even agree on, like, what responsibility is. It's like holding a blind man responsible for not being able to see something. I just don't get it. It's like, oh, and by the way, I determined you to not be able to see, but I'm going to hold you accountable for not being able to see, which I determined you not to be able to do. Okay. Sometimes, scripturally, I see Calvinism ignoring not only, um, he says, the Bible tells us to both search and uh, the scripture and to reason. Doing this, we see the impractical implications of its doctrine and, and the ultimate conclusions. Uh, he says, regarding eternity with Calvinism, absolutely nothing that Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, Moses, or the prophets did or changed anything. The birth, life, death, burial, and resurrection of Christ never changed anything. The lives and martyrdom of the apostles, disciples, and early church changed nothing. From the early church to and through the Dark Ages and Reformation, changed nothing. Men like Tyndale died so the common man could have the word in their own language, yet it never led to a single eternal destiny being changed. Belief, repentance, godly living do nothing to alter predetermined destinies. You or I could forsake all, spend our life teaching, preaching, sharing the word. Decades and decades could be spent with perhaps thousands showing signs of sincere belief, yet not one soul is taken from the grasp of hell. Not one soul is added to those bound for glory. Not one goes from the broad path of destruction to the narrow way. If God has declared who will or who will not receive him before creation, ultimately, nothing matters. Every printed Bible was a waste of paper. Every study was a waste of time. Every sermon was a wasted effort. Calvinists condemn and belittle non-Calvinists when, in fact, they don't believe these can be saved anyways. In fact, they have no assurance they've been chosen for glory. They may have been tricked by God for his entertainment. They even put great effort into winning the argument when, ultimately, nothing matters. It is gospel to none. It's determinism to all. It's favoritism to the chosen. It is fatalism to the non-chosen. And that is the ultimate conclusion of Calvinism. Nothing matters. As to the criticism it'll receive, he goes on uh, to say, 
likely one of the first attacks will be, but uh, things do matter. Everything matters. There's always a ways and a means that God uses to accomplish his will. And Sam says, okay, here's a test to consider whether that's true or not. Today, 1,000 babies are born. 100 years from now, all 1,000 are physically dead and buried. Calvinism says all are born with an unchangeable present, not just foreknown destiny of heaven and hell. Calvinism says the destiny you're born with is the destiny you die with. So, with Calvinism, as to the 1,000, question, did any one of the heaven-bound elect end up in hell, and did any one of the hell-bound non-elect make it to heaven? If according to Calvinism the answers are no, what was accomplished, what mattered? A sad result and proof of the conclusion is the increasing number of Reformed Calvinists, even high-profile pastors that are not only leaving this hopeless, fatalistic theology, but leaving Christianity for atheism. It doesn't matter in Calvinism. It really doesn't. It's all predetermined, scripted. Doug Wilson uses the script analogy, and uh, that's all it is. Like, I cannot think of a more impactful thing than understanding that God loves you and he died for you and he wants to spend eternity with you and your future is not settled you have a choice to make as it's related to the gospel so i want to end with this the simplicity of the gospel is the understanding that you're a sinner there are consequences for your sin you're responsible for your own sin and one day you'll be judged at that judgment You'll either stand condemned or you'll stand with the imputed righteousness of Christ as your advocate. Jesus as your advocate, how do you get that imputed righteousness to you? The Bible says to as many as believed, to them gave he power to become the sons of God. Um, The Bible says over and over and over, uh, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. The Bible is clear. Belief is the only thing required for you to have eternal life. That is the instrument by which God has chosen you to be placed into Christ. It's by faith that you're saved and not of works, lest anyone should boast. It's not election. This concept of election, like you've been chosen to go to heaven or hell, is bogus. That's not the gospel. That's not Christianity. It's a false gospel. So I want you to hear the real gospel. God loves you. He died for you. And he wants to spend eternity with you in heaven because he's risen. And one day he's coming back. And one day you'll be judged. And one day you'll stand before him and give an account for all the things done in your body, whether good or bad. I want you to know this. God loves you. And uh, he's written a book for you. He wants you to read it. He wants you to get to know him better. There's things in that book that I don't understand there's concepts like this original sin that you know lots of people have written out about for millennia and will continue to write about i want to do my part to uh, show you what people the work that people have done like adam harwood sam webb uh, different people have written about these things that i've quoted today david allen dave anderson i didn't include the quotation from from dave anderson on here but It's, um, maybe someday we'll get to it. So 
I'll leave you with that. I hope you have a blessed day. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast and I hope that you share it around and let other people know about talking Christianity. I hope you guys have a blessed day. Have a great day. Oh, I didn't get you to touch